Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Christmas. It's nearly Christmas. Hello and welcome back to The Front Three. Actually, today it's The Front Two. It's David O'Brien and Chris Ennage. Kristen, how are you doing, buddy? I'm good. It's nearly Christmas. It's nearly uh, the greatest time of year. How, how are you, anyway? Yeah, I'm good. Christmas has not really hit me. I haven't done any of shopping yet, and what we're on the twenty twenty second, and I'm yet to buy a single present. But I've done the shopping in my head, so I'm halfway there in terms of what I want to pick. But anyway, let's uh, let's get into the news quickly before we jump into this evening's Q and A. Let's start off by talking about the main man, and that's Alan Pardew losing his job once again. Alan Pardew, if you're looking at managers lost their job in December in the last few years, has done it twice. But Chris, what do you think the reasons are for his departure and um, is it a good decision by Crystal Palace? Yeah, it's a good decision. Look at the record they've got. It's terrible. It's really terrible. I think they've won six games in 12 months. Um, You couldn't really continue on. And the thing is that Palace this season especially in the summer, invested a lot of money in the transfer market. They went for Benteke, they went for Townsend. So they've spent a good portion of that TV money. So if you lose that next year and you go down, how on earth do you keep players around like that? You're going to have to make a sizable loss, at least on Benteke, if, if, if anything. So it made a lot of sense. I think, realistically, this is just the narrative or this is the timeline that Pardew tends to to suffer, which is he might start brightly and he might be able to to have that dead cat bounce, as people say. Um, but long term, I think he's very one dimensional in the way that he plays and the way that he manages people. And ultimately, that tends to rub people the wrong way. I think it's great if you're the kind of person that likes to be pushed and kind of has that chip on your shoulder already. But if you are someone that needs even, I would say, the remotest bit of confidence and and sort of cuddling if you will from your coach you're not gonna do well under Alan Pardew I think yeah I think it's it's finally you know it's turned for him you know the run in the the FA Cup really gave him gave him an extra gave him this season gave him the start of this season you know another three four months but his league form has been absolutely atrocious I think in the last if you take the last 36 games that Palace have played under Pardew then they've racked up something like 23 points or something ridiculous like that and in in a Premier League season well, in, in the history of the Premier League, if you've got below 33 points in the Premier League, you've been relegated. So if you take his last 36 games, even if you have two on um, and he wins both those games, still going to be relegated on 29 points. So it's not been good enough for Alan Pardew. In terms of replacements, any men that you can throw into the arena? Well, we were talking before we hit record then, and I think you threw David Wagner's name in there. 
I mean, he has just turned down Wolfsburg, so I don't think realistically would then be up for Palace because they're in a similar kind of spot realistically. Um, I do like him. If you wanted to really think outside of that figurative box, Gary Rowett's unavailable at the minute, or is available, sorry, without without a club. Um, it looks like it's going to be Allardyce. That's what everyone, uh, the Guardian in such and such, I forget his name, is reporting. Um, so it looks like it's going to be Big Sam, and it's being described as a progressive move. As someone that knows numbers and such like, is it fair to say that Sam Allardyce is not a progressive move? Or think, is he a progressive move? I think he's move? progressive in terms of the stability. I think we've we've seen recently the effect of Sam Allardyce on the West Ham defence. Obviously, two seasons now have gone past and they're losing that um, togetherness and that organisation. And I think Sam Allardyce is a manager like Tony Pulis to get you to a certain level in the Premier League. Um, and to progress you on, you, know, you look at that Bolton team, they were pushing for Europe season after season under Allardyce. You know, the style of football wasn't the best, but Allardyce can still do that with his organisation. Yes, West Ham fans would probably say the, the style of football is a bit boring. But similar to Tony Pulis, Tony Pulis' teams are boring, but then if they get a, the right blend of players, like, you know, you're thinking of JJ Kotcher in that first Bolton team, you've got a really, you know, um, progressive side. You look at uh, West Brom right now, someone like Matty Phillips, Chris Brunt, on the wings are looking really good. So for me, I think Sam Allardyce is good for one of those lower league, te- lower sort of Premier League teams. And with Christian Benteke, that's instantly the perfect target man for a Sam Allardyce team. It's also being reported in uh, the Sky Sports News are reporting that um, Sam Allardyce representatives will meet with Crystal Palace in the next 24 hours. So that looks like it, the deal could be on. Um, moving on to some other news, Julian Draxler has been heavily, heavily linked with PSG. Um, in the last few days and there was reports today that the a deal has been sealed with Julian Jackson moving to Paris and Hesse going to Las uh, Palermes over in Spain. Chris, what do you think of those moves? Hesse has been a bit of a... What's the word? What's the delicate word for this? The diplomatic word. Yeah, he's had a bit of a tough time in Paris. Um, I know Andrew Gibney, who is very much an authority on French football, didn't speak too highly of him, doesn't speak too highly of him. Um, he's had some injuries. In general, the move seemed a bit bizarre. It didn't feel like Morata to Juventus in that regard. So I think going back to, to Spain, is it is a little bit of him kind of accepting like this isn't going to work at, at PSG. Um, and I think he did have a spat with Emery at one point where he came off and he, I think he either came off or he was, was on the bench and he, and he did say essentially, and it was caught on the cameras, him saying, look, I didn't come here to be a sub, you know, I didn't come here to play 70 minutes a game or something. So, yeah, Las Palmas is a, an interesting one. I joked about, you know, um, going to see them post-New post, post New Year because him and Kevin Prince-Boateng could be a right riot um, up front together. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think for him that works for the short term. I think long term he needs to work out what he wants to do. Yeah, it's been an attitude that's reportedly been Hesse's issue, you know, still living in a hotel uh, in Paris, not really settling in there. And Unai Emery's a, you know, a manager that it's his way or the highway. And I think for Hesse, potentially it's the highway. And it could be a good move go back to, going back to Las Palmas. But you mentioned, obviously, Marata, who went to Juve and completely um, moved his career on and took himself to that next level. And it's a shame that Hesse, the player that's got a lot of talent, a lot of, lot of talent um, that isn't really, hasn't really made it over in Paris. Other news, uh, we've got Hugo Lloris has signed a new contract with Spurs till 2022. They've pretty much signed up their whole team, which is quite promising. 
Um, and again, you've, you've, you know, they've got the, the keys now. If anyone wants to go and purchase some of these players, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be setting you back a lot of money. Other players that have been linked this uh, week, we've got um, Van Dijk, Virgil van Dijk with a, a move to Manchester City. Quoted to be around £50 million. Chris, what do you think of that one? It's a lot of money, isn't it? Although, in the grand scheme of things, it's it's a little bit more than John Stones. So is he a little bit better than John Stones? You could argue he's probably a lot better than John Stones. Although I think he is a little bit older as well. Um, lots of littles and lots there. Yeah, it's an but, interesting, th- interesting one, isn't it? I feel like John Stones has been taking a bit of a beating on his defending. And I think, like you're saying there, Van Dijk is a better defender. Yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. He's, he's For me, Van Dijk is someone that's grown massively um, in terms of he's not just a, a physical presence. That is a big part of his game, his ability to rough rough strikers up within the laws of the game and such like. But I think he's actually a very good ball player as well. And look, this is part of the thing I, I think sometimes that we forget is that someone like Van Dijk had the benefit of going to Celtic where, say what you will about the SPL, it's still a very big club. There are still very big expectations. And a mistake at Celtic is a lot grander than at some clubs in, in England. And then he goes to Southampton. And he has this sort of development path, if you will. It's it's not a case of, OK, he's 21, he's 22. Thrust him into this big opportunity at, at a you know a top English club where if he you know doesn't perform brilliantly, then he's useless. And I think that patience and development is key. And I think this is what teams sometimes forget is that it can take a little bit of work for someone to, to reach their potential. It's, it's not always something that comes to fruition when you're 21, 22. I mean, De Bruyne and Chelsea is a, is a good example of that. You know, they let him go at a, a fairly young age and now it doesn't look like the, the greatest thing. So I think we have to remember that part of the reason Van Dijk has become so brilliant, if you will, is because he's had the patience and, and space to grow. I think it's yeah, it's a good thing there. Um, one question from from Twitter. Uh, we got our Q and A later on this evening, but one that mixes in quite nicely now from Ollie um, at Ollie Sheep ninety seven. Um, what would be best for Van Dyke? Stay put, uh, move elsewhere. Cough Manchester City. Cough. What do you reckon, Chris? Stay put, move to Manchester City. Potentially move to Chelsea, Man United. Maybe move out of the Premier League. What do you reckon? I think I think stay in the Premier League. Definitely, I think that works for him and and the kind of player he is. As for where to go, City does seem like a bit of a graveyard for defenders at the minute. It doesn't seem like... I mean, <laughs> Man United have died. Would you know what I mean? Think, think of how many... I mean, Jerome yeah, Bortek, there's a guy who goes there at a young age and is seen as this complete accident waiting to happen, goes away, works with Pep at Bayern, and now you could argue is seen as one of the best in the world. Mm. Is a World Cup winner, for example. Um <sighs> I'm sure City fans, which I'm assuming the person who asked this is, would love him to be there. I would be tempted to say Chelsea would be better for him. Yeah, Chelsea could be an interesting one. But then with the likes of Kurt Zuma coming back, it could be quite a nice back four, of As- uh, back three, sorry, Vasco Lequeta, David Luiz in the middle, and then Kurt Zuma maybe on that left-hand side. But you know, it's very... An interesting moment for Chelsea and a very interesting moment for Manchester City. Moving on to the other side of Manchester, we've got um, Lindelof being heavily, heavily linked with the move to Manchester United. The Swedish centre-back. I'd like to see him at Manchester United, having watched, watched Benfica from, for, you know, for the last season and a half. I think they're quite an exciting team to watch right now in, in terms of youth development. They're doing a lot of good things. But Chris, do you think it's a right move for him to move to Manchester United to replace the likes of maybe Marcus Rojo, Phil Jones? He's having a fantastic season. 
Yeah, I think Rojo was the last defender they bought from Portugal, wasn't he? Um, he's a lot better than Rojo, I can tell you that. In terms of whether it's the best move for him, I think it is. It's Benfica need the money, realistically. They need to sell someone. Um, and Lindelof is the perfect candidate for that. They're already, from what I've been reading, planning his replacement or trying to source his replacement because Luis Sao looks like he's on the way out as well. It's a lot of money for Manchester United. The one good thing that I, I would say counts in his favour is he's a very mature young man, uh, Lindelof. I spoke to one of his teammates at his first club in Sweden and he talked about the fact that when he was 17, 18, he played like a seasoned pro for them, like a, a veteran of the team. And it's those little things, the little intangibles, if you will, that you look at and you say, OK, that probably makes him a good candidate for a move like this at what is a still relatively young age. Yeah, I think he's a, like from what I've seen in terms of his defending, it, it's been very good in terms of the, his decision making is something that sort of stood out in terms of being on the ball as well. Um, obviously, a player that can, that can play out the back, and some some managers, some managers, some people have linked him uh, to be similar to Rio Ferdinand. For me, he is more of a Nemanja Vidic type defender um, about how aggressive he is, but also uh, Vidic was good on the ball. I think that's something that we massively underrate as as football fans. That Nemanja Vidic was a top top ball player, um, and obviously could play out the back. And again, with United, with uh, you know someone like Eric Bay, who's uh, relatively aggressive, with Linderoff, that is a very, very mean partnership. So if, if he was to move to Manchester United, I'd, I would be rather happy um, in the close season, you know, well, not the close season, in the January transfer window. But anyway, let's move on to some questions. Let's start with uh, Carlos Zordeva, a, a friend of the show, a great listener. Um, his question's coming from... What is your favourite club side of all time? Mine's Pep's Barcelona, especially the 2011-12 Barcelona. The way Tic Attacker seemed to open teams up so easily and, and fluidly had a, a sense of football purity. And that year, the top three for the Ballon d'Or was Lionel Messi, Xavi and Iniesta. Uh, Chris, what's your favourite club side of all time? Favourite? I don't know. I, I go through phases. I, I'm a bit like that with music as well. I go through phases of that Barcelona team that you mentioned there, they were a very fun team to watch. The Arsenal team of, of all three or four, that was a very good team to watch. I, th I think so often for me personally, it's about the moment. It's about kind of where you were. Like the 96 Newcastle team holds a lot of enjoyment for me. So Bobby's Newcastle team, similar. Um, Try to think of any others. Like little, yeah, it's it, I, I can never pick just one personally. I always uh, have these phases and moments with teams and players. Yeah, I think I'm the sort of same there. I think my favourite team of all time is probably the Man United 2007-8 um, side with Tevez and Rooney, Ronaldo, the fluidity and Park Sung was absolutely fantastic. But in terms of Barcelona, I, pre I really prefer the 14-15 um, side. I think it's in terms of the counter-attack, it, it was a more all-rounded side where it could do everything, you know, play with the ball, play possession football, hit you on the break. It just had it all. And obviously Neymar, uh, Messi, Suarez is probably the best three um, the forward three of all time um, will be from a, from a long time. But no, it's a good question from Carlos. Thanks for sending those in. Again, if you want to send any opinion, questions into the front three, uh, it's at the front three on Twitter with the number three. We've had some good reactions in terms of gifts um, from the, the Pardew sacking. Um, got one uh, from Joseph Elliott uh, with at Statman Dave's face when Pardew gets sacked. And that's obviously Sam Allardyce when he's winding up Chike Sancho's Flores, which is a brilliant thing. Not Chike Sancho, is he? Uh, the fellow that what's the fellow that played for Swansea, Chris? I'm losing his name. 
Um, so played for Swan, really? Oh, Chico Flores. Chico Flores, that one. Yeah, when Sam Allardyce got in his face, that is a brilliant gift. But anyway, if you've got any questions, gifts, or any general general fun, send them into our Twitter account, and hopefully we can pass opinion on them. Um, so next question, we're coming in from John um, at Dark Hiller Ed. Um, your thoughts on Steve Holland leaving Chelsea uh, for a job with England, Chris? I have no opinion. Do you? <laughs> I think it's it's positive, but I think England is a is a dark hole um, where managers and, and coaches <laughs> go to die, unfortunately. Um, so it's a dangerous they thing. Put Steve. that on the, uh, <laughs> on the on the sign outside the Burton training complex, <laughs> where coaches and assistant managers and physios end your days. But now it could be interesting. Obviously, Steve Holland's been at Chelsea for a while, and he's done a lot of good things there with the academy. So. Maybe it is right um, for him to move over to England um, and try and push that along because again we've got a bit with a lot of problems with the the football team and the manager and everything. But anyway, let's move on. Um, Harvey at uh, Barca TT23. In my opinion, Ibra deserves more respect for what he is still doing at his age. What are your thoughts on that? Well, for me, this season he's been he's been fantastic. He's been so clinical. But it's something that you watched Ibra last season. That's the same sort of striker he's there. But Chris, have you been impressed and then? His impact in the Premier League, did you expect that? A little bit, yeah. I mean, he's he's a, he's a great player. He's always been a great player. I think, <coughs> excuse me, too much of his career has been reduced to moments. He, he hasn't done it in this game, so he's not this kind of player. You don't win as many league titles as he has and be a bad player. Um, or Or even one that's not near the top in terms of world class and and even that ranking system is a funny thing as well because it's so fluid and and so difficult to define because what's world class to me might not be world class to you I think the one concern I had was how he would handle the the quickness of everything because the Premier League does move quite fast and yet I might have said this on a previous player. I always remember Lloyd Remy coming to England and saying that he loved English football because there were so many chances for attackers. The game could really move from one end to the other very quickly. And to digress slightly, that's what I think Pep has, has struggled with on the, the flip is that you can press teams, but they can also transition it really quick from front to back. And that just totally nullifies any point of pressing. So I think for... Zlatan, he's handled that very well. Um, in terms of his quality, though, I, I, I never saw that diminishing because he was never about speed. He was never someone like, for argument's sake, Martial or Henri, who used to you know prey on defenders and speed past them. He was all about his size and using that to his advantage, which, as we've seen down the years, there are players with much less technical skill than him who've made a very good career in, in this league just because they're big and, and physical. Yeah, I think with the, I think with one of the things that I picked up on in the in the scout report I that did was was how he his timing was so good, and then that's a big thing. You know, you might not be the quickest player in the world, but if your timing's spot on, um, or your your gamemanship's top spot on, you know, you saw the the pullback that he did on McCauley at the weekend that gave him that yard, and obviously the referee can't potentially see that because it's massively off the ball. But that gamesmanship and that timing was absolutely perfect, and obviously scored the opening goal that day. But that was a big thing that was massive that I really, apart from the rest of his game, you know, his hold-up play, his ability to play as a sort of false nine and his technical skill, it was just his timing of his runs was absolutely perfect. Going back to what you mentioned, again, we're going to go on a massive tangent because Adam and Lawrence aren't here, Chris, so we can go wherever the fuck we want. Um, I just want to talk oh, about yes. the definition of world class because I went on a, um, a live stream on, on Full Time Devils this week uh, as, a, as a caller, as a guest. And uh, the question came up was, 
was Roy Keane world-class? And for me, I take the definition of world-class similar to how Sir Alex Ferguson takes it, where there's very, very few world-class players um, within a generation or within a time frame. Like, I'd say there's probably two to three to four world-class players within, like, a three to four-year period. But it'd be interesting to, like, what is your definition for world-class? Because I think it's thrown around too much. And again, just playing a bit of football manager, going an even further tangent, um, there's, you look on football manager right now and you play a few seasons and then there's so many players that have got the label world-class winger, world-class striker. And I think it's too much. I think mm. to be world-class, you've got to be at the top. But Chris, what do you reckon? I, I'm inclined to agree with that. I think, realistically, it's, it's difficult to reduce it to numbers and say it in the top five or what have you. I think you've just got to have something different to you. There's, there's got to almost be a consistency there. That, that's the other struggle I find is that there are a lot of players who maybe show world-class tendencies or world-class moments, but whether they can do it over that consistency, whether they can change a game and influence the most important moments, that's what a world-class player is to me. And the difficulty I have sometimes is that we, in the same breath that I talk about that consistency, we are very willing, it seems, to write someone off just because they didn't perform in that moment that we saw. And and Zlatan's probably a good example of that. You know, he did he didn't do it against a few English teams, so all of a sudden now he's not world class. He is. He may have just struggled in those few games. He's he's still someone like I say that's won the league, that's won the Eredivisie, that's won Liga, and I think he won the Liga as well. So he he be, he's definitely got that within him but as with anyone he's got that potential small frailty yeah I think for me it's definitely about that it's that longevity I think it's the consistency and it's you've got to affect the game that amount of times a season um, to really push yourself on I, I don't like the term world class I think we need to come up with another term to describe the next tier which will be full of loads of players I'm not saying that some of these players are really, you know, they are top, top players that will put in world-class performances. I just don't think the world-class performances are as consistent as the likes of Messi, as the likes of Ronaldo, that at the moment are the world-class players in world football that are dominating and are, you know, pulling their team to, to such heights, to such levels. I'd also say Antoine Griezmann, potentially what has been touching on being world-class over the last 12 months, but then he's hit a really bad patch of form right now. But anyway, the big question was, was Roy Keane world-class, Chris? Yes or no? I honestly think no. I, personally, this is just my opinion, and I'm well aware this could get me a lot of needless crap, so I don't <laughs> even know why I'm saying it. <laughs> I thought he was a decent enough player, or he was, he was a good player, very good player, whatever, that was a little bit of a thug from time to time, and that in some ways that sort of fused this... And I mean, people say, oh, the, you know, the Juventus game and the Champions League. Again, it's that idea of he can have world-class moments, world-class tendencies, but I can't personally think of these mountains and mountains of games where, oh, he changed this game and he did this. He was a little bit rough, a little bit physical in a time that allowed it. I would say he came at just about the right time as when the Premier League was around the end of its curve in terms of what it would allow from physical battling midfielders. But other than that, I mean, I look at the Alfie and Gahalan thing, that clouds my, my opinion quite a lot. And I just find myself thinking, no, he wasn't world-class personally. I think in terms of um, looking at it in a way where we, we're taking away what Roy Keane was for Manchester United, you know, he was a leader, he was a hero, he, he was that guy that really got into people's brains and United did go on to win games through that way. But I think the I think there's some systematic bias that's been caused by the, the semi-final of that Champions League. Yes, he carried United to that Champions League 
uh, final, but how you know, I'd like to, to, to maybe go back and as someone that I unfortunately have a bad view of Roy Keane because I only saw him at the end of his career. You know, I was nine years old when he was getting United to the Champions League final. So unfortunately, I don't have a great view of him as a total player, as a total footballer. I remember him playing centre-back and playing deep in midfield and not being too great. Obviously, the end, the, the back end of his career, um, before that, obviously, he would have been a different player and so forth. But I think in terms of the systematic bias angle, so systematic bias is when you have a, a tendency um, of an institution, so potentially we could say Manchester United to or Manchester United fans, to prefer or, or predict one outcome over another based on previous uh, preconceptions of the truth. And that preconception of the truth could be that final. Uh, sorry, the semi-final of you know that higher level of performance for that one game. But I think the question is, how many times did he do that? How many times did he carry United to a win? And, and if he did it loads, yes, he's world-class. And if he didn't, no. But anyway, that has been the great ta- tangent, Chris. Thanks for being part of it. Um, if you want to tweet at um, Kristen, it's, um, what is it, at K Hennage on Twitter. Yes. So tweet. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Get your many hate. I've received a lot of hate this year, this uh, week, and it's been quite fun. Uh, I've enjoyed it. And but if you want to say anything nice to Chris, obviously find him on Twitter there and hit that follow button because he got banned recently for doing some naughty stuff, and obviously they've let him out of another go. So yeah, um, it's been allowed followers. back into the <laughs> been allowed back onto the playground. <laughs> right. Anyway, moving on um, because that was a tangent, one hell of a tangent. Uh, let's go to Harry uh, D Two's question. So that's uh, H D J Cornish on Twitter. Uh, which Premier League club is the most dependent on their fullbacks? Quite an interesting question, Chris. This is this is one hundred percent one for you. One hundred percent, this is one for you. Um, I I kind of think maybe Tottenham because of their plays quite reliant on Danny Rose and Carl Walker. Not saying it's a bad thing. I think playing, um, you know, you're having very attacking fullbacks and attacking through your fullbacks is something very modern in football, and that's how you get that extra width in that final third. So I say potentially Spurs could be in there. Um, in terms of dependence, if they were to lose a, a fullback or a wingback, let's say Chelsea could be a big one there as well. Um, Southampton a few years ago with, with Bertrand and Nathaniel Klein were massively, you know, when they, those two didn't play, they didn't play very well. well. Any other sides that can jump into your head, Chris, that are maybe Arsenal with Bellerin and Monreal? Yeah, Liverpool. Oh, well, Liverpool's Liverpool a good feel, one, actually, yeah. Feels like Klein and Moreno or whoever, or Milner in this case, as has been more recent. Um Anyone that really likes to use their fullbacks. I think tends to be teams that don't play with traditional wingers, really, doesn't mm. it? Um, sort of. Your you could argue Sunderland a little bit because Patrick Van Arnholt, um 
I saw some mad stat the other day. I think only three people have scored for Sunderland this season. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and even still, Van Aanholt going back sort of the last twelve months or whatever has been so influential for them in terms of getting goals, which is mad to say of a fullback. Um, so Sunderland are up there. There's no one else. I feel like City. Mm, I think I think that's what City are doing wrong at the moment. Well, they're is trying they're to not be, dependent. It's quite it is quite interesting in a way that you look back at the Guardiola sides and they've always had the best fullbacks in the world. You know, you you, mm. you see, did you watch the? Oh, one thing we didn't even touch on: Leipzig versus Bayern Munich last night. Um, one thing that Ancelotti's done is he's moved Alab, um, he's worked Lam and um, what's his name, David Alaba, back to fullback, um, and you're now seeing. Uh, a more structurally sound Bayern Munich that can attack down their fullbacks very, very well. You know, they were quite narrow in, with the front three and then those two players were getting up very, very well. You know, go back to the, the thing, it's the first goal where Philip Lahm gets forward very, very well, plays the ball across, Lewandowski shot on goal and then Thiago's there for the rebound. But I was very, very impressed with Bayern Munich last night. Again, Leipzig are a top team and the, the Feuchtberg red card was a bit... Eh, I could see why it was given, but also it could a yellow could have been absolutely fine. Did you watch the game, Chris? I did. It was... Uh, I. It was a stupid tackle by Forsberg. Mm, I mean, stupid. You can, I, I, I don't disagree with your assessment on it could be yellow, it could be red, but I didn't understand why he did it because if if my memory serves, there were 2v2 at that point and plus, there was so much space or, or field to run into in terms of them getting to the, the Leipzig goal. Um, it's it's just madness, so I don't understand why he did it. Mm. The actual game itself, it was it was a little bit dreaded Tatum, Homer Simpson, really. Um I felt sorry for Leipzig because I think I think this was more than more than a game, to borrow a, a slight cliche in regards to it was a measuring stick for them in, in the Bundesliga, um, in terms of where they were at, because they have got these very ambitious plans. Um and you know, for all the talk of Hoffenheim and, and the fact they're unbeaten, they've drawn a lot of games lately. So you, you're looking for that rival, and I know Bayern, um, whether it be the players or or even talking, funnily enough, to some of the the guys in the US office when I was in New York, they they like that RB Leipzig exists. They like that there's potential competition there because nobody wants that one horse race every season. And the fact they were put to the sword so, I would say, so convincingly and and without really I would say buying getting out of third gear that's a little bit of a disappointment for the for the league I don't know if you have any strong opinions on that yeah I think it was just a bit of a shame I think that red card again if you go back to you know if you haven't seen the tackle it's sort of there's a break on um and as Chris was saying it was a 2v2 and Forsberg's you know working really hard to get back and it's a tactical foul where he's you know he's gone in and he's taken the man out but he, he goes in, sort of studs up and catches him right on his ankle. You know, if he'd gone across and sort of hooked him, would have been a yellow card 100%. So it was maybe a stupid move from Forsberg. And as well, with Leipzig as well, they transition from attack to defence or defence to attack so well, so quick, that it kind of was a bit of a mistake. But in terms of players, Thiago was absolutely fantastic. He played, it was an interesting Bayern team in a way. They played a sort of 4-2-3-1 and Thiago was playing ahead of both um, Alonso and Vidal. And what Leipzig couldn't really handle was that midfield three. They were obviously playing a two. And the numbers game just was a bit too much in terms of the rotation of positions of those three players. It was absolutely fantastic. But Thiago was brilliant. did everything as a, a modern 10 would want to do. He tackled, he intercepted, he created, he triple passed players, scored a goal, assisted a goal. It was just brilliant. But again, Chabi Alonso moving ahead of him, Vidal moving ahead. It was a very fluid side. And I think this, this Bayern Munich team, again, classic Ancelotti, start quite poorly. But then as the season gets on and on and on, they'll get better and better and better. So I was very impressed by Bayern. And 
you know, it's pretty much game over in La Liga and already game over in uh, Serie A given the, the performance of Juve this weekend. So, yeah, those two leagues potentially already over. So maybe get your money on those two as your, your sort of ackers, to, you, you know, your sure bets in your ackers. But anyway, let's move on to some more questions. Uh, David Shanahan, another friend of the show, uh, D Shanahan ninety, sorry nine hundred thirty on Twitter. Chris, what's the best Christmas present you've ever received? Best Christmas present ever. Monster truck. Yeah, monster truck. <laughs> when I was a real four. one. No, no, it was like a what do you call it, like a two foot tall one. Um, Sweet. Yeah, I got a monster truck. It had empty petrol cans in the back um it went maybe three miles an hour at most but yeah that was that was pretty intense um ghostbusters gun was up there definitely <laughs> super nintendo around that same time was pretty mind-blowing we actually bought that off our neighbor and it had like 26 games with it so i was set for life mm. uh, i had no idea how i was going to ever find the time to play all those games Anything that jumps out for you? No, I don't know. I, I kind of, I, I'm kind of like lost. You know, like Christmas, you sort of, as, as you get older, it's more about your family and it's more about kind of giving presents than receiving. So, you know, I can't yeah. really think of a present that's really stand out. Obviously, there's been loads of decent presents over the years, but now I kind of, I enjoy giving somebody a present more. I enjoy buying somebody. I enjoy buying like funny presents. Like one year, I got my sister a tin of spam. It was fucking fun. To see her face was absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed that. Obviously, really weird. I'll, I got something else afterwards. I basically wrapped it. Yeah, I got something else, but it was like a, it was like an impact <laughs> present. So she unwrapped this thing, and it was a tin of spam, and she was like, "What is this?" But no, I got, I think I got some like really nice um, scented candles, a very good present. You know, like bath candles. I can get some really nice expensive ones that smell top drawer so it was that and it was a tin of spam night in the bath with a, a tin exactly. of spam i don't think she ever ate the tin of spam i think it went straight in the bin but the, you know the heart was there it was it was a bit of fun anyway moving on to the shining oceans question um i think that's i can't think of finding the name at nate jenny um with a few x's and o's around it who asks with all the rumors going around about james rodriguez which premier league club would suit him um or and need him chris who needs him who does he suit? Two separate questions. Oh, Christ, who needs him? Um, could you argue Man United made it, need him, maybe? Um, I think it's an interesting one. United uh, don't, in terms of the system that, that's evolved to, they've moved to a 4-3-3 uh, with a three-man midfield of Herrera, Carrick and uh, obviously Paul Pogba. But, you know, so he wouldn't really fit in there. If they, again, why he doesn't fit at Real Madrid is because he is naturally a number 10. But obviously there's been political stuff also there. So maybe Man United, have, if they were to go for a 4-2-3-1 next season under Mourinho, maybe. But then heavily linked with uh, Antoine Griezmann as well, who I kind of would prefer over James Rodriguez. But what about what about Chelsea, Chris? You Chelsea, Conte? Oof. Is he hard working enough for that? Is he? I don't know. He, he, the thing is with him, and I watched him. I was lucky enough to, to see him in in, uh, in the summer during the Copa America. And what I took away from that, from talking to Colombian journalists, from seeing him with his teammates, from actually watching him play, is that he one hundred percent needs to be the the organ grinder. In respect of, he needs everything to be built around him. He has to be the conduit for everything in an attacking sense. And that's a lot to ask, I think, in, in today's game. Very few teams that I can think of really do that anymore at the highest level. Um, you could argue if you were trying to get rid of Ozil and you weren't going to bow to that pressure, you could maybe throw him in at Arsenal and see what happens. Well, but I think whichever team buys him, a little bit like 
PSG have just done with Draxler because it looks like that deal's all but done. You've got to accept that in buying him, you're then giving him the keys to the attack in, in the same instance. You can't just buy him in and go, oh, we'll just shunt him in and see what happens. Yeah, I think that, you know, you look at the Columbia side of the, from the World Cup that was absolutely fantastic. You know, he was the focal point and he was the heart of that side. And obviously, you know, finishing that tournament, I think he was directly involved in more goals than any other player. And that fantastic goal he scored, um, was it against Brazil, that volley? Or was it not Brazil? Maybe it was around before. But no, a player of supreme talent that just hasn't quite worked for Real Madrid. In, go- in terms of going back to the building your team around one player and attack, I think that has worked and I think it, it can work. You know, you look at the likes of um, Wolfsburg with... Uh, Kevin De Bruyne in there, you know that that was really just De Bruyne was was the main man in attack, and potentially you you, you could argue maybe Messi is is the key man. Obviously, there's more bows to that thread in a way, but no, it could be interesting for for Chelsea, for Arsenal, maybe even Liverpool. I imagine that that'd be quite interesting. Jurgen Klopp with a front three of James, Rodriguez, Sadio Mane, and Coutinho maybe, and then Firmino as a false nine. That might work, but yeah, it's it's an interesting one. James Rodriguez, a supremely talented player, and I think he's is on his way to uh, the Premier League potentially in January. Moving on to uh, Kyle's question, uh, coming again again on Twitter. Remember the front three, at the front three on Twitter. Uh, when will Chelsea finally drop some points, Chris? I'm just going to give you the next few games, their fixture list, to give you a little helping hand. So they're playing Bournemouth on Boxing Day. Then on New Year's Eve, they've got Stoke, um, both games at home. And then they're playing Tottenham away. Do you think Tottenham is when they're finally going to fall out of this winning streak and again, never take over? I think it's the Arsenal record of 13 games. Do you think this Chelsea team will break that? They would have to beat Tottenham, wouldn't they, to do it? That's That would be the game. It's a big ask. Big ask. Because I, like, I would like to think the Conte discipline carries them through that in the same way it did with Man City. Mm. It's just that thing. It's these two. It's two very disciplined managers who demand structure and demand, and which one um, sort of, you know, which one breaks. It's two cars going head on at each other, and it's whichever one blinks first. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say they get beat by Tottenham. I kind of agree. I think with Tottenham, they'd be very highly motivated following, obviously the. Inter- not incident, but the game, obviously, that Chelsea played last season that kind of killed Spurs and uh, killed their title hopes was last season. I think they're going to be very, very motivated for that. So, yeah, I think that Chelsea, uh, Chelsea will pick up two wins over Christmas and then maybe pick up a draw against Spurs, maybe lose them away. You know, it's going to be a, it's a big game for Chelsea. Moving on to uh, JJ, sorry, J. James Allwood's question. Um, should more rulings be brought in in regards to the use of homegrown players uh, in squads to increase potential chances? Uh, is that the question? Yeah, just potential chances of England, maybe? He's phrasing it as Chris here. Do you think there, there should be more homegrown players in squads and there sh- should the FA look into bringing the rule there? I think so. I, th- I think the other problem as well is, is um, there are, not loopholes, but there are, there are rules now that essentially you can get away with not naming as many homegrowns. You just have to accept having a smaller squad. I don't think that's very conducive to success. I, I think, and look, it's, it's, it's funny because in MLS, there's kind of like a, a reverse problem in regards of the squads are very tight. And so I always think of Miguel Ibarra, who was cut because they didn't have enough space to keep him, goes to Minnesota, has a good career, does all these kind of things. Um, so it's, it's just a little bit... I, I definitely think this. They need to 
have a better grasp on the situation because at the minute the problem you've got as well is it's all well and good adding these extra homegrown slots and saying, okay, well now Chelsea, City, United, etc. have eight homegrown players in the squad of 25, 26, whatever. It means nothing if they're not going to play. If they're going to be in there with 23 or 24 other internationals, they're not going to get into the team unless there's some catastrophic injury problem, which I think, again, there are certain... It's it's just yeah it's a, it's a very much a, a moving parts issue for me. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. It's it's a it's more of a you know it's an institutional thing at the clubs. I don't think any ruling is gonna. It potentially would push them to maybe moving into that model, but I think clubs are gonna be run whichever way that they're being run now, and I don't think that changed. But anyway, it's quite interesting. I was looking at the Chinese Super League this week, and they in fact for each club they have four slots for foreign players, so you know any anywhere in the world, and then they have another slot for Asian players, and I think there was a lad that. I can't remember what the fellow's name was, but basically he'd be playing in Saudi Arabia for so long that he got Saudi Arabia, Arabian dual nationality with Brazilian and wasn't allowed to be in the sort of Asian players part of the squad, which I don't know, quite interesting. Just a random other fact because we can go on whatever tangents. Brazilian who did that with Poland the other year as well? I can't remember his name for the life of me. I reckon so, but it's quite it's quite an interesting one. Oh, obviously the uh, well, there's obviously the um, Italian strikers. What's the the fellow that plays for Inter Milan up top? Adair. Adair, yeah, Brazilian national that's, you know, been nationalised over in Italy. But no, it's an interesting one. I don't, no, I don't think it's going to be, going back to the question, I don't think it's going to make any Cabernese, change. Oh, yeah, the, there's a term for it. Um, I can't remember what the, the but it's, uh, it is a term applied to foreigners that represent, um, that represent Italy. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not a, a rare thing. Funnily enough, just looking them up, Caronese is actually a coach in the Mexican second tier. Sweet. He's currently coaching Caronese. Cafetaleros de Tapachula. So if anyone is a fan of them, knows of them, let us know more. Let us know how he's doing. I'm curious to see what, yeah. what formation uh, does he play. I couldn't tell you. I'm looking at their Wikipedia. <laughs> um, he's got he... a massive squad. I know that. <laughs> As you find out what formation this lovely team that Camerazzi manages in Italy, we'll move on to the next question from Gary Goals at Dayson, nineteen ninety six. What a legend! Who would you rather have at your club, Ozil or Sanchez? Chris at Newcastle, Sanchez. Ozil or Sanchez? Sanchez. Sanchez, uh, 100%. I like I like Ozil, but but honestly, um, the more I kind of look at him, the more I think, oh, you're a bit of a luxury. You. He, he creates stuff, of course he does. I'm not going to contest that. He's potentially one of the best assisters and prettiest passers in the world. I'm just not convinced of him in terms of that marquee guy. I think I think he works great when he's got the elite around him. But if you're wanting him to raise the level of those around him, I don't think he necessarily does that. Mm, I, I, I kind of agree with that. I think Mezic is a wonderful, wonderful player and uh, suits playing with certain players put it that way you know certain players that you know play on the last man um either in a wide area or through the middle but Sanchez yeah I think Sanchez gives you a lot more in terms of what he is as a player in terms of his hunger his defensive work in terms of pressing that he does especially through the middle not a massive fan of Sanchez defensively out wide but through the middle he's absolutely fantastic and we've seen this season that he's the focal point of this Arsenal team now and they well they have been rocking until you know the last week or so so yeah I'd definitely go with Sanchez at Manchester United Mourinho, sign him up. Right, moving on to Jeff's question. It's me, Midu. Uh, what stories from 2016 did we miss or forget about? 
Chris, any stories in 2016 that we've missed or you've just deleted in your memory because they were so horrific? Um, probably a fair few Pardew ones that will resurface now and again. Um, trying to think anything. See, there's the, the fairly grotesque ones that we don't need to cover because it's Christmas and nice things. Yeah. Um, the only one that I can think of that I am quite pleased that I ended on ended the year by learning is that uh, Boca Juniors kit man, I think it's his kit man or staff or someone, one of the coaching staff anyway, wears Kyrie Irving's basketball shoes on the sideline. <laughs> I assume because they're in yellow. Um, but yeah, they look they look absolutely on point. Is that the most stylish coach I think I've ever seen? That is a fair fair point. In terms of things that we want to forget about, the list goes on and on and on. Brexit, Donald Trump. And, of course, Alan Pardew's dance in the FA Cup final. What were you thinking, Pards? You muppet. Anyway, let's move on to the last question of the day. Coming in from Connor at Irishbroke7 on Twitter. Where does Matic rank among the best PL central midfielders? So, the best Premier League midfielders. Chris, where does Matic rank for you? Let's go with this season. Let's keep it quite specific. On current form, where do you put Matic? It's difficult because Kante gets a lot of... The credit doesn't he? he's seen as like the very much the one that does the most and to be fair i haven't looked at his ball recoveries and things quite recently for a piece of it in arsenal it, it's fair to say he gets he gets through more work than my age i think it's, uh, it's it's an interesting one in terms of their midfield the kante is this is playing the same role he played um at leicester city last season where he is your shuttler he is your worker he is going up and down mm. what matic has done this season is uh he's he's got himself forward quite well in terms of assists in the premier league i think only De Bruyne and Coutinho had more assists than him. Oh, no, sorry. No, it's so only De Bruyne have got more assists than Matic this season. So you've got to look at it in that way that he's, he's getting into the right areas and obviously giving that license to move forward, played a different role with Fabregas in that midfield under Mourinho. He's doing quite well. But, you know, let's look at the, the central midfielders um, and we'll rank them. We'll rank the top 10. So let's throw Matic, who's definitely in there. Let's throw Kante in there. You put Jordan Henderson, maybe. Let's do top five, actually. Jordan Henderson, Paul Pogba. Um, any other in the names? Premier League? Yeah, just just do Premier League. Ander Herrera's had a fantastic season for Manchester United so far. Yeah, Herrera's good. Um... In terms of City, Fernandinho was brilliant at the start, maybe less so now. Adrissi Gay has, has been very, yeah, very oh, good. Adrissi Gay, my God almighty. Um, who are you going to go for? Who is number... Let's do number one to five. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. I could easily form an argument for Gay to be top because he only costs seven million pounds. Mm. He costs seven million pounds, and you look at that Arsenal game. Not only did he outperform Coquelin and Jacker on a defensive end, he also created more than the pair of them as well. And he, if you wanted to, I know it's not a stat that's necessarily um, recorded at the minute, but you look at that Seamus Coleman goal they score. It's his well-timed pass to Baines that instigates the whole thing. So. He's been very influential. Um, I quite like Herrera as well. I think there's more mm. to come from him personally. I, I'm terrible at ranking things in general. I'm quite <laughs> happy to defer to you because you, right, let's you are it. the man with the numbers. So I, I am a massive fan of, of Gay. You know, I think the big thing with him against Man United is he outplayed Paul Pogba. He pretty much did a job on Pogba and obviously popping up for the, the penalty at the end if Pogba stays with his manager. If he's gay, you know, that, that doesn't happen. It's not going to be a 1v1 one one with Aaron Fellaini. He isn't going to lose his head. He's going to stay on his feet. But anyway, let's move on from that. So I reckon, um, I think because we are living in a time of shuttlers, I'd potentially go with 
This is a tough one. I've set I set up as very very tough. Let's let's go with let's. So our top midfielders. Let's say Ander Herrera. I'd quite like to argue Paul Pogba's in the top five of central midfielders. I'd quite like to say maybe Matic, Kante, and Gay. Let's go. That's our five. So, Man United importance. I'd say Herrera has been better at setting the tempo than Paul Pogba but Pogba will have a better season. Pogba's now starting to get there. So right now, I'd say Herrera is above Pogba. And let's say maybe Gay is above Herrera and Pogba, and then Kante's number one, though, which means Matic is five. So our top five at the moment, right now, off the cuff, Matic at five. Then we've got Pogba at four, Herrera at three, then Jesse Gay at two, and Angulo Kante at number one. Obviously, we're missing out Senor Jordan Henderson, uh, but he's hit a little bit of... A rough patch of form recently. Um, but that's our list anyway. But anyway, guys, if you want to tweet us at the front three, please make sure that you um, drop them in order. Who is your top five best central midfielders this season in the Premier League? And that has been that. That is a wrap. It is over. The tangent has finished. Hopefully, one of the cool guys will return for the next podcast on Sunday or Monday, either one of those days. Uh, obviously, Christmas is going to be blowing our schedule up, so hopefully yeah. we'll let you guys know on Definitely Twitter when we're going to be. But Chris, if people want to find you on Twitter when your account is not banned, where do they go? At K-H-E-N-E-A-G-E. I did try and delete. I set up a second one with the same handle and then an eight on the end and then tried to delete it and Twitter is just having none of it. <laughs> so if you want to find some of, more of Kristen's uh, X-rated account, follow khenage 8 on Twitter. But anyway, guys, that has been The Front Three this week. If you've got anything to say to us, find us on at The Front Three on Twitter, but also go and subscribe to us on YouTube and find us on Facebook. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Bye, guys. See you later. It's over.